I would like to welcome you to another episode of Are You Really Living? Today, our special guest is Mr. Sam Afron. Welcome, Sam. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. You are Jewish. Is that correct? That is correct. For somebody like me, I was raised uh, as a Christian. I was raised in a... So for somebody like me or somebody that's listening to this episode today, they don't know about the Jewish religion. What would you tell them? It's a good question. I would tell them that it's more important to me personally as a cultural and historical heritage than a ritualistic religion. Um, I think I studied history. I went to college for history. I always loved reading history books. I think that the length of time that the culture, the Jewish culture and the Jewish people have been together um, is what defines us and what defines the culture. And that identifying that is more important than anything, you know, ritualistic that you do in any religion. Um, I don't want to, uh, you know, encroach upon other people's faiths. But in my opinion, I think that the things that bring you together are the history and the culture, um, as opposed to the acts of a religious observance. Okay. So what is the, what do you observe? In other words, in Christianity, some people Sunday, they go to church on Sunday, or within the seven days religion, they go to church on Saturdays. So for you, what are the days of the week that you observe? Uh, and when do you go to, I believe you go to temple, you don't refer to church. Uh, how does that work? Yeah. So typically you'd call it a synagogue, a temple, the Yiddish, uh, which is a language created in Europe uh, by the Ashkenazi Jews. It's a fusion of Hebrew and German. Um, you call it a shul. Um, but yeah, synagogue or shul. Um, the day that you would go typically uh, and observe is Saturday. However, in my family, um, and we, when I was growing up, we went on Saturdays uh, to a conservative Jewish synagogue, which is as far as observances, uh, it's about the middle of the road um, as far as the strictness of your practice. Um, but what we would do every week is what's called Shabbat dinner. And in my opinion, Shabbat dinner is the most important part of the Jewish faith. I think many people would agree with that. Um, it's a holiday. It's a sacred holiday. And Shabbat starts at the Sabbath. Uh, that's the Hebrew word for Sabbath. And it starts Friday night at sundown. Uh, and it goes till Saturday night at sundown. And uh, it's the day of rest, the, the day when God rested after he created the earth, after the first, uh, in the first chapter of the Bible, the Torah, um, Old Testament. And it's a day where on Friday night, you say a blessing over a cup of wine, uh, over the loaves of bread, the challah, and you have this festive meal that's regular every week, but festive meal um, with your family. And it's really just a time when you're with family, you catch up, it's a symbolized the end of the week. And then you go to synagogue the next morning, which is the day of the Sabbath, the Shabbat, um, to have Shabbat services. In my opinion, the Shabbat dinner, and we did it every, I, I make a pun religiously, every every week religiously growing up uh, with my family. And it was the most, I, I, I don't think of it with anything but warm memories. Um, it's a great experience. And you just catch up with family, spend time with family, um, have a nice dinner. And it's just, it's hard to describe, but uh, as a routine, uh, Shabbat dinner was probably the most important observance on a weekly basis that, that I did. Okay. What about the new year? I, I believe that the new year for you start different than others. For example, your January 1st, I believe is in September. Am I getting this correct? Yeah, generally September, but you got to remember the Jewish calendar is on a lunar calendar um, and there's different months. So there's Hebrew months, which don't really correspond to your January, February, um, which I believe are Roman you know, derived from, from the Roman um, calendar. So uh, there originally the Jewish New Year didn't start uh, on with the holidays called Rosh Hashanah, but um, it is 
in the Hebrew month is called Tishrei, and the first of Tishrei is Rosh Hashanah, and it's the Jewish New Year. Um, it doesn't really correspond to January. I believe it probably corresponds to old harvest calendars when in fall, mm-hmm. um, you know, they would be harvesting, and that would be the New Year. And the symbolic holiday there is Rosh Hashanah, and you ring in the New Year by blowing this large ram's horn called a shofar, and it's an obligation. Uh, okay. like a bit like an obligation one of the most sacred things you can do as a jew which is called a mitzvah mm-hmm. uh, to hear the horn be blown on rosh hashanah to commemorate the, the coming of the new year but yeah it is a fall holiday uh one of the jewish high holidays and it corresponds to the hebrew months not the, the english and roman months okay okay makes sense um let's talk about i, I know there's many questions that i have in terms of the jewish uh, faith now let's jump a step further into marriage. Can someone marry outside the Jewish religion? In other words, yourself right now, would you be able to marry somebody that's not Jewish? So it's interesting that you ask me this. Um, my girlfriend is not Jewish. I was brought up Jewish. I went to Jewish school. Um, you know, I spoke Hebrew in the house with my family, always identified as Jewish. I love the culture, the history. My girlfriend is not Jewish. And I, I personally drew, drew lines um, for myself in my own like moral uh, an ethical um, sort of compass that these things that everyone as a human has their values. I don't care if you're Jewish, Christian, whatever your religion. Personally, I don't really, I would never judge people. I think that would be probably part of how as a good Jew, you should treat everyone else. I wouldn't judge you based on your faith. Right. So in my view, I don't really care. Um, however, it does have impacts with your kids. For instance, to be a Jew, your father, your father's religion doesn't matter. If you are a Jew, it is because your mother was Jewish. Um, so if I have kids with a non-Jewish wife, my kids technically would not be Jewish. Um, no matter if I bring them up Jewish, they'd have to go through some sort of conversion process. I don't really know. So that is, a, that is something that's significant for me. Um, I always thought I'd bring up Jewish kids. But personally, you know, if I love someone, I don't care what their religion is. And I think any religious or, or, or righteous or ethical person would agree with that, that everyone has their, you know, positives and certain things you just don't control. And I think that, you know, love and affection sort of supersede any sort of religious laws but i'm always a rule breaker personally so okay yeah yeah now within the jewish religion can you what what is what is considered a miracle to you a miracle huh yeah well i mean historically pretty much all the jewish holidays you know circle around a miracle happening to something good happening to jewish people and it's celebrated as a holiday um you know those are typically like the jewish people were saved from a war or um which is the story of Hanukkah or a holiday Purim. They were the, uh, the evil advisor to the emperor was trying to exterminate the Jews uh, back in the Middle Ages that, um, and they were saved by, by the hero. Um, I think those are your typical ancient miracles. I mean, I think we see miracles every day in our, in our lives. Like, for instance, I was on the street. There's a couple of homeless people on my street. I live in Miami Beach. It's a busy place. There's homeless people. I saw a random guy give um, a big food carton to, the, to this homeless woman that's out there every single day. You know, stuff like that that you see. I, I don't know if we really have these grand miracles in life. I think we probably have the small the small stuff that's good that that helps people. Mm-hmm. And that's really what matters. I don't I personally don't think I've seen a biblical, so to speak, miracle. Um, but, you know, we've seen good deeds, good things happen to people that, that could use it. And I think maybe maybe even miracles supersede faith. I don't look at my faith to get miracles. I think. um yeah, that, it's, that was a tough question. I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, in reference to the Hanukkah, I believe that's what it's mm-hmm. called, what you put over your head. I mean, I've known you a, a while, and I do know you, you're a Jew. 
but I've never seen you wear it. Um, I got to correct you there. Hanukkah is a holiday. A yarmulke is what you wear on the head. That's what I was referring to. Apologies. Yarmulke. So the yarmulke, that's what you put over your head. Um, I've never seen you with one. But why why is it certain people wear it, certain people don't? And when it, when do you need to wear it? Great question. Um, you have never seen me with yarmulke. I will say that I have worn a yarmulke in our old office uh, with Barry a couple times when I said the morning prayers with our an attorney that worked with us, uh, Barry, um, which is when you would wear one, which is when you say prayers, which when you, um, you know, reach out to God or you perform a Jewish ritual. So there's a morning prayer that you say every day that you involves wrapping this leather garment around your arm. Um, I wore one, for instance, on a day for the 15 minutes that I did that and said the prayer with, with our colleague. Um, you would wear one if you go into the temple. Um, that is because I'm a conservative Jew. So that's my level of observance. Um, Orthodox Jews will always wear a kippah. A kippah or yarmulke are the terms. That was the term my family was growing up. It's another one of these Hebrew versus Yiddish words, um, different languages. Orthodox Jews will always wear one. Um, I will wear one if I go into a temple or if I'm doing a blessing, like on the Shabbat dinner I described before when you say the blessing over the wine. But it's a reminder that God's above you and it's a sign of respect. That's why people wear it. That's what I was taught growing up. Um, and you cover your head out of respect to God in modesty. Um, when you sort of reach out to God or perform like a holy task or a, a religious ritual. Okay. All right. Uh, what about before you eat, you pray over your food. Do you wear it as well? Yeah. Any blessing um, you would do that. I don't say a blessing before I eat. Typically um, you would, there are blessings. For instance, if you eat fruit, you say a blessing that says, thank you God for the fruit of the earth um, or the tree. Um, if you eat bread, you would say a blessing over bread. I don't typically, that's a very observant uh, uh, tendency to say a blessing over everything you eat. I don't do that. When I would go to Jewish school, we would do that in school. I don't do that on a regular basis as most conservative Jews wouldn't do, which I think conservative Jew is probably the mainstream. Um, I don't know population wise, but I think conservative is probably pretty mainstream. Um, but yeah, anytime you say a blessing, if you say the grace after meals, you would wear one. And like I said, if you're an Orthodox Jew, you would wear one all the time. I have cousins that are Orthodox. They would take their yarmulke off to play sports or shower, for instance. But otherwise, you're you're wearing it. Okay. Now, the other thing is, um, I'm going to talk ask you about before we jump into the next topic. It's in reference to circumcision. Yeah, I know it's very uh, it's practiced a lot within the Jewish faith. Uh, why is that? One second. I was told that when they perform the circumcision on a, on a young boy, there is no anesthesia. So can you talk yeah. to us about that? So there's no anesthesia typically. Um, you're like, you're eight days old when it, when it happens. Obviously I don't remember when I was circumcised, um, you're eight days old, but I've been to a few after the fact because it's a religious festival, it's a, a festival or a celebration. You, you celebrate, um a circumcision because it means you know you're bringing in a new jewish person into the world um it comes from the biblical the the bible the old testament the torah the first book um where god makes a pact with abraham and part of the pact is the circumcision out of respect for god um and that's sort of the uh, uh that's sort of an indicator that you are part of the chosen people um the pact is what they call it and the Hebrew word for pact is brit um, in 
American Judaism when or in Israel or wherever, the cer the ceremony for it is called a bris. So it's related from the same word. It means the the contract, the, the agreement uh, between God and Abraham that you know the Jews are the chosen people to honor me. Um, you know this is what I command. I don't know the background further than that. I couldn't give you reasons why God did one thing or the other. Um, that's just what you learn. That's what we studied. It's in the Bible. Look it up. First book. Um, but there is no anesthesia. Um, I, I have pictures of mine, but how it works is they take a cloth napkin and they dip it in wine. They say blessing over the wine, which is what you do in many holy uh, ceremonies, any dinner or um, holy ceremony. They take the napkin, dip it in wine. They put that in your mouth when you're a baby. Mm -hmm. So I just gestured over my mouth. That's why the audio was messed up. But they put that in your mouth. It soaks in your gums and you get a little buzz apparently when you're a baby. And that's the anesthesia they use. Either that or it stops the baby from crying. But um, that's how it's done. And yeah, I mean, I have no traumatic memories from mine, although even though there was no anesthesia, you're eight days old, so you don't really remember anything. Um, but yeah, that's that's what it that's what it's from. It's one of the earlier chapters in the Bible, in the in the story. Um, and it's one of God and Abraham. That was the original pact. That was the first person that um, the first Jew, so to speak, um, that uh, worship God and acknowledge God as like the one true God in these Mesopotamian civilizations of idol worshippers historically. Um, and so, yeah, that's the background. Um, it is a big ceremony. You have catering, food. It's a it's a festive it's a festivity. Um, and I actually seen in many cultures. Um, there's non-Jewish cultures that do a very similar ceremony. African cultures, some uh, Muslim cultures do it, and Muslim faiths do it uh, at eight years old. Um, but I've seen some some odd allegorical or parallel rituals in non-Jewish cultures. And I've watched it on a bunch of, you know, documentaries and, and it is a, looking up that phenomena across many cultures that had no contact is interesting because other cultures do it um, in different ways. And mm -hmm. it is very similar, um, but are not Jewish whatsoever. And obviously Islam comes from Judaism, but uh, even, even further, there's unrelated cultures that do it. Um, but is it is it performed? It's not performed by a doctor. It's performed by a rabbi, correct? The term for the person that performs it is called a moil. Uh, that's the like Hebrew Yiddish word for it. I, you know, I've always wondered uh, what they're they have medical training for sure. There must okay. be a certification. They have rabbinical training, you know, a rabbinical degree or something um, as a clerical person. But they also have some medical training. It's a specific um, role. It is not like you do this on the weekends. Yeah, that's your job um and okay. you would be you would be a professional moil um and it's you know both ritualistic and medical um you know i'm trying my mom's a doctor so she must have been there overseeing you know when i when mine <laughs> yeah. was like you know but i but i'm pretty sure they have either you know registered nurse training or something like that but i i am speculating i do not know for sure but i was always under the impression that it was both religious training and medical training because by necessity okay all right, so let's jump into the next topic really quickly. I know you're a football fan. You love football. You play football in high school, and I believe you play in college, correct? No, I didn't play in college. Yeah, okay. um, I would have tried to, to make the team, but I ended up busting my knee and had three knee surgeries um, subsequently. So that dream ended, you know, before it was birth. But I did play in high school. Love loved football. Loved uh, always will. Um, followed the season pretty pretty closely. And um, I would always think, I think it's my favorite sport out of all the sports. So now, why is it football is not international? Why is it only in the U.S.? 
That's a good question. I think it has to do a lot with the fact that it's more of a recent sport as far as when it was invented. Um, and I just, I know it was invented right around the turn of the 19th century. The first football games were in the 1890s and early 1900s. And it was primarily American college football, like Navy versus um, Wesleyan, these old school colleges, um, Yale, Harvard, Princeton. Those were the schools, the University of Michigan. It was, a t- it was historically, it came to prominence as a college game in the U.S. And I just think that, and then professional football in America didn't really come about in, and become serious until like the 40s, 50s. So I think it's just a relatively new sport in the scheme of things and hasn't necessarily had its time to spread to the world. And at this point, you know, the world is saturated with soccer. Um, so, you know, it may have been too late to the show. So currently, how many teams is in the NFL? So you have 32 NFL teams. 32. 32 NFL teams, 32 owners. And is it by city, by state? The reason I'm asking those questions is for someone that is listening to, the, to this podcast and doesn't know anything about football. And that wants to know, you know, how do they create a team? And how do, how after the team is created, how do they recruit the players or how many players in the team? Um, so we do know there's 32 teams. How many players in the team and how many games before we get to the Super Bowl? So that type of, that's my question, really. Gotcha. Um, so, I mean, the teams are typically given to big cities. There's 32 teams across the country, so less than one per state. Uh, but there's four divisions, north, south, east, west, and two conferences that comprise that. So four teams in each division broken up regionally. Um, and then the two conferences, the American Football Conference and the National Football Conference, play each other in the Super Bowl, the two winners of those conferences. So that's how it's structured as far as the format of the lead up to the Super Bowl. But the teams will play, I think, yeah, it's a regular season of 17 games, followed by a tournament style playoff bracket, which has seven teams on each side. So after the 17 regular season games, the best 14 teams, seven from each conference play in a tournament, the two winners face off in the Super Bowl. The teams are typically comprised of, I think about 50 players. And then there's practice squad, which has a dozen or so players. And these are all players that, you know, played football in high school and college, unless they, you have exceptions, some come from different backgrounds, but they all, for the most part, played in college and were taken, selected by the teams in what's called the NFL draft, um, where they take every year, uh, about 250 players from college selected by each team um, that then comprise the rosters and they sign their players, obviously through agents and lawyers and mm-hmm. contract negotiations um, from the, the draft. The draft is what gives teams rights to a player. So mm-hmm. let's admit, let's say you have a, a, a player from the university of Miami that has a great college season, the scouts, the professional Teams have analysts, film departments, an entire back office filled with basically scientists that analyze this game. And they'll say, out of all these college players, this is the guy for us. He does this. He has this talent. He has these physical traits. This is the guy we want with our pick in this year's draft. Each team gets about seven picks um, through seven rounds, and they go select all the players that they deem worthy from college and then sign them to multimillion-dollar contracts. Now – Somebody like Tom Brady, 
Mm. He made a lot of money. For somebody that first time recruit, how much can they be offered? Like the low, low, low ball. Low, low, low ball. How much can somebody make? I think it really, well, first of all, it's all negotiated on a union scale, union, and they have a wage scale. So based on where you're taken in the NFL draft, that's how much your salary is worth. Unless you negotiate later on in your career after your first contract is up and you're worth more money, you can obviously negotiate for whatever you want through your agent. But there's seven rounds of the draft. Players taken in the top of the draft are probably making five to $15 million a year. Um, then each year uh, that money will go up because the assumption based, based on that scale is that if you're a top pick, but you're three, you're four, you're an all-star, right? So you're going to make more money. I think the undrafted players, many players are not drafted because there's limited spots, but people get injured. Um, people get signed to practice squads. The lowest contract, and I'm estimating here, uh, I, I used to know, you know, I knew the exact numbers just a couple of years ago, but it changes. I would say they're probably making about half a million to 800000 a year. Okay. At the lowest end of the wage scale, the undrafted players, the players that didn't have a lot of hype coming out of college or that weren't, you know, all, all world talents that that got picked up later on um, and signed to a, a cheaper deal, about 500 to 800,000 a million or so. Okay. Like what's what's the retirement age for a football player? I mean, they always say that the average career is three to four years. Um, nowadays, you even have players that are, all-stars retiring at a younger age is because of the awareness of all the injuries and the impact on their body. Someone that's made 80 million, let's say over an eight year career might not want to play the full 12 years or whatever it may have been if they're banged up and they're walking with pain. Um, but you know, they say that it's and I, they, the general, the general, they, they say it's about three to four years average uh, career length for a player because it's a violent sport and collisions happen. You're running on turf. You can, twist an ankle, tear a ligament, that's non-contact. You can get serious concussions and, and torso injuries from contact. So, I mean, three to four years is probably a long time after you've played high school ball and college ball to bear that, you know, stress on your body. But they do it, and the physical game is probably a small part compared to the year-long training in which you have to put your body through to be able to do that, let alone. So three to four years doing that intensive sport is a – is a long time. Uh, it doesn't sound like much, but it probably probably is a load on the body. But uh, a quarterback can do three to four years, but a kicker, a kicker doesn't really have that much contact. Can a kicker last longer? Yeah, even a quarterback doesn't have that much contact. They've designed the rules now to, to, to play to the quarterbacks. You can't hit quarterbacks in a certain way. You can't pick a quarterback up and slam him on the ground. You can't land on top of the quarterback uh, because the quarterbacks are the superstars, right? People pay mm -hmm. to see Tom Brady. Tom Brady's out because his knee got destroyed. Well, the NFL is out there, superstar, right? Um, so, you know, quarterbacks last long. But, yeah, I mean, these are the players that are, are, are in the trenches, running backs, linebackers that are, that are carrying the ball, hitting each other, tackling. Those players are the ones you're going to look at for a shorter uh, time than a quarterback or a kicker, even a receiver nowadays because um, the rules have changed. There's, You know, if a receiver was looking back to catch a pass and jumping up in the olden days, a defender could just come and absolutely destroy that player, leading with their head, jump, turn their body into a projectile, and, you know, hit them in the head or torso like a missile. Nowadays, those rules, the rules prevent those types of hits to make it safer, to make these players, you know, careers longer. 
which then in turn helps the league maintain their superstars and, and the image that they want. So it's good for the game too. I mean, you don't want kids doing that either uh, playing. I mean, you don't want to restrict kids from playing sports. I think the kids can, kids should be able to experience a lot of different things, but make it safe. You know, that's the most yeah. important part. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Now the next part we're going to talk about is uh, I know you're outdoor men. You'd like to be outdoor. You, you don't like to be indoor at all. So you're a surfer person. You like to surf. You like the water. Um, what do you tell somebody who's afraid of the ocean or afraid of going uh, hiking? Who just doesn't believe that it's for them? I think that anything can be for you if you do it right. Anything done right is going to be enjoyable. Um, I try not to limit myself to things I don't think I'll like. For instance, I went to Pilates class with my girlfriend a couple of times and it was hard, but I enjoyed it. Um, I would say to someone that thinks, you know, the outdoors, the ocean is scary. Yeah, it is. It's uh, nature. It's supposed to be scary, right? But that doesn't mean you can't enjoy it or appreciate it. You can appreciate it for what it is, do things carefully. Um, and you might enjoy it more if you appreciate the severity. I mean, if you're in the middle of the ocean on a boat and, you know, I do a lot of diving and spearfishing and you go down and you dive to a reef and you're 30 feet under and you see sharks and all kinds of fish and, you know, lobsters and eels and stuff, you might be a little freaked out, but that's because you're appreciating, you know, the strength and the power of nature. Um, same being like if you're hiking through a forest, and you don't see humans for miles and you're on the top of a mountain. I think, um, you know, you might feel a little fear, but that's because you're doing something that's, that's worthy of fear. And I think that's the important part to appreciate, not, not to be afraid before you do it. But uh, fear is, fear is sometimes good. Now, out of all the cities, why did you choose Miami? Why did you choose to move to Miami after you left Jersey? Um, I did not choose to live in Miami, actually. Um, and I think kind of the best things in life usually happen when you don't choose them. And they just come to you and then you embrace them. But I ended up moving here because my girlfriend at the time had an internship and I had just finished college and I wasn't really sure what I was doing for the summer. And I said, hey, I'll come to Miami, stay for a few months and then got a job and stuck. But um, I would not have and I've enjoyed living here ever since. I've been here now five, six years. I um, think it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. And I have a whole new life, you know, and career down here. Uh, but I will say that I think it's important to be open to different things. And it, unless you, if I had said, no, I, I don't think I should move there. I don't really have a plan. I, um, I should stay home I sh and, and you know, stick to the plan and get a job here or whatever. I wouldn't have done it. And then I would have missed out on everything that could have been possible. Right. So I think that you embrace things that come at you um, when you don't necessarily have a plan. And those are usually the better things in life. That's, that's very inspiring. That is very inspiring because you decided to move not knowing what's go what was waiting for you or not knowing the outcome and now look at you you're basically the happiest i'm assuming i hope so i mean dude i was scrubbing boats in the 100 degree sun for eight hours um my first job here you know i got here and i didn't have a plan and i was like oh, i gotta make ends meet through the summer we're renting a condo on the beach and um i just took a job after college you know when i was supposed to be working in an office and you know, or going back to law, going to law school and I was scrubbing boats and I did that for a couple of months and ended up getting a law firm job and, and here we are. But, but yeah, um, I think I'm happy. I think 
it's hard to it's a weird question I don't <laughs> go around every day thinking am I happy am I not happy I really enjoy every day and um, I have a, a beautiful girlfriend uh, an amazing puppy and uh, good friends and I couldn't ask for anything more okay well this is what this podcast is about you know the title are you really living and I uh, greatly appreciate your you stopping by and dropping some knowledge on us and letting us know how things are and how you see things through your eyes. So thank you again for stopping by. Um, if anybody want to reach out to you, is there any um, social media handle you want to leave so they can reach out to you? I do not have any social media. Um, I never have. I don't really plan on it. I don't really have time for it. And um, not that I have anything against it, but I think, Go out and do something outdoors or something. Don't be on social media, kids. <laughs> that's that's going to be an, an, another topic next time you come on the, the uh, podcast so we can talk about social media, the impact it is having on on this society. You know, is it good? Is it bad? Is it in between? So that that's going to be your next topic. I Yeah, and I'd love to hear your opinions on that, especially with kids and, you know, raising kids nowadays, how, how you think social media kind of, impact that and i could give you a whole hour on spear fishing i'd love to all right all right well thank you very much uh and then for the audience um like and subscribe thank you thank you very much